This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I think we're going to start off today by, by taking a look back at something we were mentioning a few shows ago. How it is that the French Bulldog has apparently become the top U.S. dog breed, breaking the long run held by the Labrador Retriever, which held the top spot for, I guess, 31 years. We found this rather puzzling. I have a friend that has a French Bulldog. I thought it was a very oddball kind of animal with its bug eyes and short snout. I, I, I guess I wouldn't say not hyperactive behavior, but frisky behavior. We were a little bit puzzled by this dog coming out of nowhere, I guess uh, even like a quarter century ago. didn't even make the top 75 breeds, and now it's number one. We thought we'd better bring on a doctor of veterinary medicine to discuss uh, our concerns, as it were. So uh, I'm happy to be able to bring on to the program uh, Dr. Evelyn Warner. Thank you. Doctor, I think you had a chance to hear our reference previously to the French Bulldog as a kind of genetically modified organism. I guess I would start out by asking, is that a fair description? It is, and not all genetically modified animals or food products are necessarily a bad thing, but it all depends on how mindful these genetically modified animals have been approached. And French Bulldogs are certainly cute, friendly little animals, but they are rife with health issues, unfortunately. Let's take a look at that. I think we all understand that dogs, uh, the kind of familiarists, I think they're called, all dogs are descended from wolves, but some of them are decidedly not wolf-like. Yeah, yeah not, not similar at all. I mean, they might think they're pretty mighty, but I wouldn't trust them out in the forest by themselves, that's for sure. Well, to develop a, a, a subspecies, uh, which is, I get what it was, what a dog breed is, like a dachshund or a bulldog, etc., that it, it requires inbreeding of the animal, which is genetically not such a great idea. Uh, uh, how bad an example of this is the French bulldog? When I think of animals that have been bred and have a lot of health issues, the French bulldog is definitely one of my top examples for multiple reasons. As you already mentioned, they have those short noses that really inhibits their normal breathing pattern. Not only that, the nares or the nasal passages are very narrow, and it's like trying to breathe through maybe like a straw instead of like your full nostril. Not to mention that they also, the soft palate, the soft part of the roof of their mouth tends to be elongated. So a lot of these animals will require surgery to open up those stenotic or narrow nasal canals as well as to surgically remove that soft palate just so that they can breathe almost like a normal animal. It still won't be normal but it'll be closer. Well that's sad to hear given how famous the dog is for its its legendary nose and its abilities and how much better a dog can smell than we primates. How, how often do these procedures have to be done? It depends on the patient's quality of life and the owner's financial constraints or whether or not they're willing to do this. I mean, a lot of people are just rushing out to buy these animals because they're popular and they're cute and they're unfortunately not aware of how severe an issue this can be. I mean, it's called brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome where they have these narrow canals and the elongated soft palate. And what owners don't realize is that eventually these animals will have to undergo anesthesia, whether or not it's to be neutered or spayed or, you know, any other surgery. And they have a much increased risk under anesthesia because of this narrowed passages. 
So you just have to watch them very closely. A lot of times owners are buying them because they think, my gosh, I can make a lot of money by breeding these animals. And they don't realize that because of their abnormal anatomy front to back, they can't even breed naturally and have to rely on artificial insemination, as well as often have cesarean sections. So that again, now you're trying to perform a cesarean section on an animal that has increased anesthetic risk. It's very stressful when you're trying to monitor these surgeries. Let's just say hypothetically somebody hands me a hundred French bulldogs tomorrow. How, how many of those are going to require your attention? It's a tough guess. Well, I can tell you that none of them will be breathing normally. Will all of them require surgery? No. But, you know, you just want to take certain precautions with these animals by making sure that you're maintaining an appropriate weight because being overweight definitely makes it more difficult for them to breathe. You don't want to walk them when it's too hot outside because that means that they pant harder and it just makes it harder for them to breathe again. Not to mention these short little noses, they have the skin folds around their nose that are prone to dermatitis and skin infections. And it's, it's constant. It's not something you treat one and done. It's something you have to maintain for life because they will always have that short nose. Owners just need to understand what they're getting into when they purchase these cute little animals. I gather that there are, there are quite a few breeds that, that share these, these sort of issues. Um, what would you point out to be some of the worst examples in the dog world? So German Shepherd dogs, unfortunately, are known for having a lot of health issues. Really? Yeah, so if you look at German Shepherds from 50, 70 years ago, their hips were the same distance from the ground as their shoulders. And just over time, they've been bred to have these hips that are lower to the ground. And, it, you know, it affects their spine. You know, they, they have hip dysplasia, arthritis. Earlier, I forgot to mention that there's other issues with the French Bulldog. If you've noticed, they have these kind of funny looking little arms and legs. It's cute to some people, but as a veterinarian, when I see that, I think of arthritis and pain. They're small breed dogs, so they have the same number of teeth as a large breed dog, but crammed into a tiny little mouth. So trying to do a dental on these guys is kind of a nightmare because their teeth are so crowded that some of their teeth are actually sideways. Yeah, they're Good little animals at home for their owners, but trying to examine their mouth at the vet, a lot of these guys are, you know, they're, they're not naughty or anything, but they're very head shy. So it's difficult to assess for dental disease. And unfortunately, a lot of times you don't find it until it's too late. So owners need to be aware of that. Another okay. thing is that they're one of the top five breeds for having vaccine reactions. And when animals have negative reactions to vaccines, what happens is their face gets puffy, they start panting, they can go into anaphylactic shock, and then an animal that already has a short nose and breathing issues, now you're even more concerned. Any other choices from the Hall of Shame and Dogdom? <laughs> I would say probably pit bulls. For some reason, there are people out there trying to breed pit bulls, and there are just thousands and thousands of wonderful pit bulls in the shelters that are getting put down every day. I mean, I don't understand the reason for wanting to breed these animals. They're trying to create what are called pocket pity. So basically pit bulls, but that are real short. But then that leads to arthritis and hip dysplasia. And a lot of these guys are on chronic pain medications by the time they're four or five years old. You have Newfoundland dogs that are just the sweetest animals, but these guys get hip dysplasia and cancer and fall in love with them, but their life expectancy is unfortunately not that long. Boxers are sweet little animals, but you have to watch them constantly for 
developing mast cell tumors. I mean, I've seen dogs that are one that are developing mast cell tumors. And, you know, just because you treat the one doesn't mean they're not going to get them again six months later. It's very difficult to treat. Let's flip it around. What dog breeds tend to be on the healthy side? The mixed breed, medium-sized dogs are pretty good because dogs that are really small tend to have their health issues like dental disease and collapsing trachea, degenerative mitral valve disease, that sort of thing. And then you have the large breed dogs that develop the arthritis. A lot of the large breed dogs, they have hip dysplasia and increased risk of cancer. So I would say the mixed breed dogs that are medium-sized are pretty good. I don't have a specific breed in mind that I recommend because I don't really recommend purchasing a dog based on its breed. I think you should adopt a dog based on its disposition and how well it fits with your family. I guess what you're saying is there's something to be said for the mutt as, as a hybrid <laughs> line is, is generally stronger. Mixed breed dogs can have their own health issues as well. And also a lot of times you don't know what their background is, so you're taking a little bit of a chance there. I do want to make an honorable mention for the Cavalier King Charles Spaniels that are known for they're just some of the sweetest, most adorable little dogs, but those guys have a lot of heart issues that owners aren't aware of. And any of those dogs that have the long spines that are low to the ground, you have to really maintain their weight because you have to watch them for intervertebral disc disease. I mean, they go from being totally normal to potentially paralyzed in 24 to 36 hours that requires a hemilaminectomy or, or spinal surgery for a better prognosis. And so it, it's better to breed dogs based on health versus cuteness factors. Well, thanks for all this. I think this is some useful advice people can take away. But, but before we leave the topic, I do have to ask about uh, whether the possibility that some dog breeds have had psychosis bred into them. I'm <laughs> thinking of the Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> they are certainly uh, very energetic and have a lot of personality. They're fantastic dogs, but they're also, you have to think about the history of what Jack Russell dogs were bred for is hunting and chasing down little rodents and critters. And so they're, they're very mighty and a very compact sized dog. So I guess if you were in merry old England on a fox hunt, you'd probably be turning loose a whole bunch of Jack Russell terriers. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something I would personally do, but if, if I were to, that would be the dog that I wanted. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to join us, Dr. Evelyn Warner. You know, after this airs, if you would like to, uh, to add to your remarks, uh, please do so. We'd love to have you back on to round this out. All right. Well, thank you for having me, and I'd be glad to come back. Oh, and by the way, is Edward McMillan single? Uh, no, actually, in fact, he is betrothed. All right, at this juncture, I think we're going to take off our zoologic hat and replace it with our botanical hat. I'm referencing an article that was in New Scientist magazine in December of last year by Claire Ainsworth. It was titled, The Mother of All Sprouts, and started this way. I studied the dogs of the plant world. That's the answer you'll get if you ask Chris Pires what he does for a living. He will tell you that dogs, despite their dazzling diversity, are all members of a single species and that the plant species he studies has its own equivalent of pugs, Labradors, and Great Danes. He will then recount his odyssey to find this plant's closest living wild relative, its equivalent of the wolf, to learn how it came to be tamed. It is a tale of Greek gods, island giants, and ancient antidotes to intoxication. 
And doggone it, that is some vivid science writing. Noted author Claire Ainsworth, having heard this, you will never see Brussels sprouts in quite the same way. Often overcooked and underloved, you wouldn't suspect this Christmas stalwart to have an exotic backstory. But the other dishes in your festive spread reveal why it is so fascinating. Whether you're eating cauliflower, savoy cabbage, broccoli, kale, collard greens, or even kohlrabi, all these vegetables belong to a single species, Brassica oleracea. Just how you can get variety from one plant has intrigued scientists, including Charles Darwin, for centuries. It makes B. oleracea a fantastic way to study the power of selective breeding. And in this case, Brassica oleracea is the species name for at least 16 different vegetables that come in an incredible range of forms. From the bite-sized Brussels sprouts to the giant Jersey cabbage, native to the Channel Islands, which grows into a sort of tree that can be up to four meters tall. They were all created by humans over the millennia. Yet, efforts to pin down the identity of its ancestors have proved frustrating. The piece notes that weedy, cabbage-like plants are found growing wild along the Atlantic coastline of Europe, and one idea is that Brassica oleracea was formed by the domestication of these in England. Another hypothesis has it that the Mediterranean, with its vast variety of cabbages and kales, is the species' birthplace. So they use modern genetic tools to take a look at this and discover there's another plant called Brassica cretica, or I guess it's cretica, that is thought that it, well, it's, it's similar, it could be Oleracea's closest living wild relative. Then again, it could be a species that reverted to being wild once the cabbage ancestor was domesticated. Now, this is something people are probably not going to lose a lot of sleep over, but it raises a couple of interesting biological issues. If there were feral plants that, you know, reverted once it was domesticated, that those plants might have uh, contributed some genes by lurking on the fringes of cultivated fields and adding their genetic input into the mix. And it notes that feral plants could be crucial to the species' future. Left off the leash, cultivated varieties adapt to local conditions forming a pool of variation that scientists could draw upon to produce vegetables better suited to a warmer world. And yes, we have to admit, like you, dear listener, we certainly do hope that in a, an ever-warming world, we will still have a place for broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, and kale. Well, maybe not the kale. No, I take that back. Yours truly actually does make a pretty good batch of kale soup. Yes, it comes from an old Portuguese recipe that uh, is not... Not very closely guarded, but, but good. And as we continue on in a sciencey mood, I, I'm going to refer to that very same issue of New Scientist, the last one of last year. He had a piece titled Secret World Beneath the Snow that had some data in it, which I thought was pretty curious. The article by Uta Eberly delves into the mysteries of how it is each winter animals take refuge and sanctuary under the snow. Peace starts off by saying that ecologist Jonathan Pauli used to spend a lot of time keeping track of animals over the winter, often across cold, harsh landscapes that seemed inhospitable to life. It always surprised him that as soon as the weather got a little warmer in early spring, insects would pop up, snow fleas would emerge from underneath the snow, and he wondered where they'd all been hiding. He eventually discovered some old scientific papers from the 1940s and 1960s, they reveal the secret world that Pauli, a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, had been studying ever since, the hidden ecosystem under the snow. The article notes that it is found in a clandestine space between the snowpack and the soil, which is sheltered from the bitter cold and where some 
Insects, spiders, frogs, and even small mammals spend at least part of the winter. Concealed from the world above, flies buzz, plants thrive, and animals forage. They hunt and they give birth in this, what's called a subnivium, derived from the Latin sub, meaning under, and nivus, meaning snow. I'm a little surprised by this. The piece notes that every winter, the white stuff covers up to 40 million square kilometers, the northern hemisphere, and the subnivium forms wherever and whenever the conditions are right. Now, that means there needs to be about 20 centimeters of snow that is not too dense. Note another researcher from the University of Wisconsin. Fluffy light snow is best. As it settles on the ground, warmer air from the soil rises up, turning the snow at the bottom into water vapor. The resulting moisture condenses and refreezes on the cold layer above, creating a space above the soil that is usually a few few centimeters high that has an icy ceiling. In this shallow nook, temperatures hover around freezing, even if the air above the snow drops to as low as negative 20 Celsius, or negative 4 Fahrenheit. There's no wind either. It's a refuge from ambient conditions that are much colder and much more variable. Thus, this relatively mild environment allows soil-dwelling insects like springtails and beetles to stay active during the winter. This is really a surprise to me, along with some spiders and adult flies. Frogs hibernate in the leaf litter, which is kept at a chilly but stable temperature. And there is light filtering through the blanket above. Often it's bright enough for mosses and evergreen shrubs to carry on photosynthesizing. Who knew? It's noted that small animals may crisscross the subnivium in, in t- tunnels, which allow them to roam and search for food. Now, I'd always seen on these uh, wildlife shows how it is that animals can, you know, snuggle up in the snow and, and do better than to face the, the, the icy winds that are, that are running about. And if you, if you ever take a... Uh, a course in wilderness medicine or how to survive in the wild. They, they will talk about the importance of a snow cave in saving you. But here's something I didn't know. Bigger animals may just take a look at the snow and say, I'm burying themselves into that. Grouses can fly up into the air, then dive bomb into the snow. As noted, they often snuggle into the warmer base layers of the snowpack for hours, as do mammals like foxes and wolverines. Now, a big question here was, what are we going to do when the winters get a little bit warmer, which they of course, seem to be doing. And there's some good news and bad news in this. The bad news is that some trees may do worse as the snowy blanket that insulates them disappears and they're exposed to colder temperatures. Uh, They note that yellow cedar trees growing all over the coastal temperature rainforests of Alaska and British Columbia, which can live for more than a thousand years, uh, seem to be in decline. Possibly, you know, well, they've associated it with areas where the snowpack has diminished. But they conducted experiments, putting some greenhouses out in the forest that uh, varied between um, heating the air from 3 degrees Celsius to 5 degrees Celsius. And they were pleasantly surprised to note that a 3 degrees Celsius increase only shrank the spread of the subnivian by about 4%. And it hardly diminished the duration for which it stuck around. Scientists noted that contrary to our expectations, the subnivian was surprisingly resilient. That did, however, change drastically when the research simulated a temperature rise of 5 degrees Celsius. They note, should this become a reality, predicted the subnivium's extent will decline by 45% and its duration by over one month. That appears to be a tipping point that we really don't want to cross. And speaking of a warming world, the current edition of New Scientist has a, a little bit of bad news in it, noting from the duh file that Warmer seas will worsen storms around the world. The numbers kind of struck me, though. They note that the global average sea surface temperature hit a record high of 21.1 Celsius 
on the 1st of April of this year, according to data from the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, this beats the previous record of 21.0 Celsius set in March of 2016 and is more than 0.5 Celsius warmer than is typical for this time of year, according to a 30-year average. I, I'm quite shocked to see that this, this, what's described, I guess, as the global average sea surface temperature could be as high as 21 Celsius, which for the metrically challenged works out to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. You mean to tell me around the world the average ocean temperature is 70? I guess if you take a look at the globe and see how much of the world is, is ocean, below 40 degrees uh, north or south, you'd say, well, that, that's possible. But to someone from California, where temperatures of 11 Celsius, which is like 52 Fahrenheit, is not unheard of off our coast. I'm, I'm just surprised by the number, that's all. I'll tell you one thing, with uh, warmer seas and worsening storms, I ain't buying any real estate in Florida. And since we're talking about potential eco-catastrophes, I, I cannot resist referring to an article from the Rolling Stone, March 26th of this year, titled, Will an Oil Racket Destroy One of Africa's Most Sacred Places? And when I saw the headline and started reading this, I got to tell you, my heart sank. The piece by Jeff Goodell notes that a Canadian company has begun drilling near the protected Okavango River Delta in southern Africa, promising promising jobs for locals and endless fuel for investors. Peace notes that so far there's been no oil, but there's been big profits for the founders. Now, as reported on this program some months back, yours truly and, and his honey took a trip down to the Okavango Delta and the Chobe River in the African nation of Botswana. This deserves uh, its reputation as one of the great wildlife locations on planet Earth, as we mentioned uh, some months ago, at one point, I, I, I think, you know, one afternoon, we saw thousands of elephants. Thousands! Now, admittedly, some are off in the distance, you know, but the, the truth of the matter is that, in general, you, you kind of do want elephants to be kind of off in the distance a bit. Anyway, to quote from the piece, the Okavango Delta is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and for good reason. It's one of the world's last wild places. It's not a savanna or a rainforest or a jungle. It's at the northern edge of the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, a desert formed of the windblown fragments of some of the oldest rocks on Earth. But at certain times of the year, water comes flooding down from the highlands of Angola, a gently rising plateau north of Botswana and Namibia, that was the site of bloody conflicts for the last three decades of the 20th century. Out of these battle-scarred hills, this land of strife and suffering runs the water that makes up the delta. Peace notes that it's very close to a place where, according to Recon Africa, an ocean of oil lies beneath the surface. It's enough to transform the economy of Botswana and Namibia and shift the political power dynamics between these countries and the rest of the world. And make every investor who owns even a small piece of Recon Africa very rich. Now we should note, of course, that we're living in a world where we're burning too much in the way of coal, gas, and oil. Yet the promoters of this oil exploration say we need to dig a hole in southern Africa and take more out. My God, you'll have so much money. The piece quoted a Namibian climate activist who said, The Okavango Delta is a paradise. Why do you want to destroy that? Well, the answer to that is money. Now, luckily, it turns out that, you know, Recon Africa appears to be running a scam on potential investors. 
A lot of geologists are taking a look and saying, we don't think there is that much oil under the ground there, and I hope they're right. The promoter of all of this apparently has already made himself uh, tens of millions of dollars by stock manipulation, you know, pump and dump. You know, here, I got a great investment here. Here's my stock. Oh, my God. I think I'll sell off a few shares now while it's high. I did like one paragraph in the article. It said, it's no coincidence the rise of Recon Africa coincided with the rise of cryptocurrency. Like cryptocurrencies, Recon Africa's value is built on air, of perception and hype. Recon Africa didn't need savvy investors. It just needed people who believed its story. And I hope that is the end of the story. We do have a friend who's on her way to this part of the world as we speak, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask her to ask around and see what she might learn about this company and oil development in one of Africa's most sacred places. You know, about the only nice thing I can say about this story is it does give us a chance to use, as outro music, the baby elephant walk. All right, you are listening to Radio Parallax. We've got a lot more to talk about, and, and we will do that if you will stick around. So, so do so. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Parallax.